The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, number 114, for Monday, August 6, 2007. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab. I'm Dave Hamilton, and uh, I'm here with John once again. It is Monday evening, well, for us, but uh, it doesn't matter when it is for you, because that's the beauty of podcasting. How are you, John? Hey. Hey! <laughs> I'm great. That's good. So you know what you got to try? This, was my, this is what I've been doing for the last few days, then we'll move on. But uh, try, copy, try scanning currency and loading it into Photoshop. Oh, boy. Fun things happen. Does it know that you've brought currency in? Knows. Yeah. Mm. Though it's interesting that technically you are allowed to reproduce currency if it's under 50 or over 200% original size. So it's clear that it's not a counterfeit. But... Uh, interesting. Yeah. But Photoshop magic... won't let you print it either way, right? Even if that it's is correct. At any size. No matter size. how clever you are, yes, it will not really? let you print. But you can do some things to the image. But Fascinating. Anyways, very in... so yeah, there's, there's a, a pattern, and, and this has also received some attention in... Uh, just to take a geek tangent here, but in some printing circles, because apparently some printers for quite a long time, and some digital and some photocopiers have in, embedded a uh, very hard to see pattern because it's usually yellow, yeah, which kind of serializes the printouts. And I guess the main thing is for you know high high end uh, photocopiers, you could make a copy of money. Oh uh, right, yeah, that makes. So sense. what happens is like, a, and I read a story of this one guy who actually called up the printer manufacturer and asked them how to remove this feature, and that got him a visit from the Secret Service. <laughs> yeah, the Secret Service, which is I guess is part of the Department of Treasury or Department of Treasury. Uh, yeah, they're all under the same umbrella, so I think the Secret yeah. Service handles counterfeiting. So they, they yeah. you know, wanted to ask, why would you like this feature removed? But yeah, that's right. So, anyways, okay, back. <laughs> Back, back to the show? Her. You think we just start the show now? I mean, should we go back and... Uh... Well, you started with a rant once, so I'm going to start with a tangent. But now right, let's get that's back fine. on track. Uh, yeah, so uh, we have a bunch of questions from you, uh, all, of, all of you this week. Every one of you. Actually, no. We, we, well, we couldn't. We just don't have time for everybody's It'd questions. Show. It'd be a really long show. Yeah. Uh, and we've got... So we've got some interesting things. Talking about backups, uh, routing... We've got an interesting PDF question, and then uh, we'll discuss magnets at some point, one of my favorite topics, and, uh, and, and we'll get into that. But we will start with, uh, with Travis. And, of course, everyone that has sent in comments has either emailed them to feedback at macgeekgab.com or called 206-666-GEEK or Skyped them to MacGeekGab. And all of those ways get to us uh, nearly immediately, though uh, we... we Tend to, I, I tend to only check the Geek Gab box once or twice a week, so uh, if you send something in or are looking for an immediate response, you may not get it until show prep, which usually happens on Monday afternoon. So there you go. That's a peek into the life of uh, John and Dave. Travis writes, Hi there. I recently added a MacBook Pro to my family of computers and have had some software installed that I don't have the original disk for. It's all legally purchased, of course, but the original disks are across the country right now. I was going to re-image my drives and was wondering, can I just copy my application and system folders to my external hard drive, or is there a specific way to do this process so I don't lose these programs? Any input would be greatly appreciated. Thank you for your time. Okay, so I, I have an answer and I'm a little confused, but uh, we can, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about this. M my thought, John, is if it's just applications and you don't mind losing preferences, then all you need to do is copy the apps over uh, from your 
max current drive to you know your external drive as a backup, and and then at that point uh, you're free to re-image, and then you should be able to copy them back again. You might need to reset some preferences or what have you, but uh, that should work. It, the, and and then I'll I'll state what what confused me here, and then I'll let you kind of share some thoughts, John. Um, he asked, "Can I just copy my application and system folders?" If you're planning, but if you're planning on re-imaging the drive, you probably didn't mean to say that you wanted to copy system folders back and forth. However, if you do, then you've got to go a whole different route because uh, the way Mac OS X boots with the the mock kernel and all that stuff is totally uh, it's it very very particular about the way things need to be set up. And, it, and at that point, something like Carbon Copy Cloner or Super Duper would uh, would would be a better choice. So that's that's my thought there, John. I'm with you on that, brother. But I have well, well. The only thing I would add is, is, I think the thought may have been to preserve the settings, as you hinted at, in the preferences. Now, what you want to do in that case is there's two main places. So I'd say if, if you want to back up an application and be pretty sure it's going to work the way it did, because a lot of times uh, preferences will contain things I, I, I would think like you know keys or whatever or yeah. activation codes that you enter. That's typically oh, yeah. put in uh, uh, in some cases put in a preference file. It may be encrypted or scrambled or something, so you can't read it but but there it's like a placeholder so when the application looks it's like ah okay i guess there are other places you could store it, but that's that's one place i've seen so uh either your you know top level hard drive slash library slash preferences uh is one place to look and then your home directory whatever that is when you log in you'll see the little house there library slash preferences within those two directories i would say you you, you uh, probably want to back up that stuff on a fairly regular basis uh along with everything else, of course, but if you only back up a few things, you know, your documents folder, applications folder, uh, and I would say those two preference files, uh, you should be able to quickly reconstruct a system that's uh, nearly functional. Yep. Yep. Oh, you know, while you were saying that, I had one other thought, John, and again, it depends on how flexible Travis is with, with what's on his external drive, but one thing to do would be if you could afford to wipe the external drive is again using something like carbon copy cloner or super duper make a true image you know totally copy the boot disk from your mac onto carbon copy cloner as though you were going to boot from this external drive then uh re-image your internal drive get everything set up when the machine first comes up it's going to ask you do you have data and settings to migrate from another mac it'll it'll launch the migration assistant essentially and uh and then you could point it at your external drive and say, yeah, I do want to copy the data and settings from, from my old Mac. And, uh, and then it'll give you the, op the option to pull applications and user data or both or, you know, whatever you like over. Again, I'm not sure what the reason is for, for uh, doing this, this re-image of the drive in the first place. If it's to, to get rid of all that cruft, well, then you probably don't want to in inherit it back over. But, uh, but that, that's another thought. That, that's certainly a... A valid option there, and it and it should work just fine. Right, right. Okay, moving on to Deborah. And I think I'm moving. There we are. Now her email's up. Deborah says, "I'm baffled by a case of what I can only describe as bad chemistry between my MacBook Pro 15-inch Intel Core two, Core Duo model and my 23-inch Apple Cinema display. The display was purchased about a year ago, and the MacBook Pro a couple months later." The original display had a fault and was replaced with a new one around the time I acquired the MacBook Pro. 
All was well for a while, but in recent months I've noticed a shadow on the left-hand side of the display in the shape of two swooping smoky smudges, say that ten times fast, that take up about a quarter of the screen. It's not there when the equipment has been switched off for a few hours, but reappears again about an hour after it powers on. At first I thought something was wrong with the monitor and left it with a friendly local Apple reseller's repair shop. They tested it and left it running for 24 hours. No smoky smudge appeared. I did not go in myself to see whether the smudge was there, but uh, we'll, te we'll, we'll, we'll believe them for the, for the sake of argument. So then I managed to get an appointment at the Genius Bar on the Apple Store here in London. They kept my MacBook Pro overnight, couldn't replicate the smoky smudge on another monitor, uh, though they were surprised by looking at the back of the MacBook Pro uh, at, and asked if I smoked, uh, and they said there was some gunk on the back that would look like uh, that looked like something that was cigarette smoke so it's not the display and it's not the macbook pro is it just some mysterious bad chemistry between them do you have any other ideas this was actually something that john and i uh, spent some time before the show discussing we tend to go through the show notes and, and banter ideas back and forth and one thing i had written while i was doing show prep today was it reminded me of uh, a situation I had years and years ago where I had a, a similar thing in the lower left-hand corner of, of, uh, of my monitor, and it was this same kind of weird thing, and, uh, but it was just one, that one corner. It wasn't a double image, and uh, as it turned out, I had a magnetic uh, paperclip tray or paperclip dispenser sitting right there, and it, if I moved it and then let the monitor sit for a little bit, and, and this, of course, was in the old days of tube monitors, and degaussed it, uh, I was able to get the monitor back. It took maybe 24 hours, and then the monitor came back around. So I was reminded of that. John, however, you reminded me that... Uh, well, I reminded you that LCDs, which this screen is, yep. uh, as far as I could tell, don't use that technology. They are LCDs instead of a CRT, CRT being cathode ray tube. And I think the reason CRTs, I, I don't know all the... I mean, you know, they, they use... Uh, you know, phosphors and electron beams and a lot of magnetic stuff. And just if you recall, like I remember a lot of the Apple monitors and pretty much any monitor of that era, at least the you know higher quality ones would have a little degauss, degauss, whatever, yep. button on the back, which would basically, I guess there was a coil around the tube that would just kind of jolt it and just kind of reset everything back to normal. And a lot of times what would happen is if, like with you, Dave, or, or I tried this. I remember we had some uh, magnets that you used to clean the fish tank. Yeah. I'm like, gee, I wonder when I was a kid at home, you know, among the other things I destroyed, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm like, oh, what happens if I hold this up to the TV? And it turned all cool colors, and it's like, wow. And then you take it away, and it's like, oh, wait, they're still there. Uh-oh. Well, usually a power cycle, you know, on, on a lot of monitors will reset the tube, but you could also hit this button to do that sort of thing. But, yeah, unless you have a magnet that's, like, so strong it's going to, like, warp metal, then I don't think it would impact the LCD because it's just a fundamentally different technology. Absolutely makes sense. Yep, you're absolutely right. Uh, so then we're like, what the Because I think we, we, we sorted it out, and the thing is, the machine on its own didn't seem to exhibit it in one scenario, and the right. monitor itself didn't. So I, I thought it was the cable, actually, but but you chimed in that, uh, or I, reminded me, I didn't have one of these, but because um, I'm trying to eliminate all pieces, but I, right. I gather that, that series of monitor, it's not a, a, a removable cable. That's right. Yeah. Right, it's built in. It's built that, in. That would have been my guess. Is all right. Everything else being equal, it may be the cable that she never brought to them. So, I, good I guess, but <laughs> yeah, I still think guess. it's. I still think it's something. It's got to be something in Deborah's yes. environment. It it has to be. I mean, if it's not happening with the computer, it's not happening with the monitor separately. Let's get the computer and the monitor somewhere else. Maybe even just somewhere away. else in your house. Away. Yeah, but away from your desk, and then. 
you know, assuming that that doesn't, that we don't have the same problem somewhere else in the house, now let's, you know, go back and look at the desk or wherever the computer's set up and say, okay, what is here that could possibly be causing this? And it's, you know, some kind of interference. Like you said, John, though, there's not a whole lot of things that can interfere with LCD, and it's happening over time. Oh, ooh, wait, one more thing. The Apple repair. Okay, what month, are, what month are we in here now? Oh, is there a return? Uh, no. A return program? No. But what month are we in? August. August. And in, uh, in London, it is summer in August. Now, it's possible <laughs> that the Apple repair shop is air-conditioned, right? The, the Apple store is air-conditioned. It's possible that Deborah's house is not air-conditioned. Thermal. Right. And so when this monitor heats up, she says it doesn't happen when she just turns it on. It takes a little while. What happens after a while when something's been on? It heats up. Does LCD heat up? Yes. Not as much as, say, CRT, but certainly there's, you know, there's some heat being generated. So it's possible that uh, either where the monitor is, if it's in some sort of enclosure, there's not enough ventilation or it's just warm in Deborah's house, warmer than than, say, the 72 degrees, you know, et cetera. Uh, in the in the Apple store and perhaps the monitors, you know, maybe it's it it's got it's faulty at some point, but you're not you're not seeing that when it's in a climate controlled environment. I don't know. That's just another thought. I had That's that a good problem. one. Yeah. And lastly, I would say you're not getting the juice, yo. And that there could be an issue with the power. So find a separate power yeah. circuit. I mean it could be that the power is dirty or, or low or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Just a thought, you know. So, so, but, but you're, you know, going about it the right way. But you know, keep changing different things because something, there's going to be one variable that's going to solve it. You, you just haven't found it yet. Yeah, Apple people didn't either. Yeah, I think I think you need to test the computer and the monitor together elsewhere first, just to just so that for your own satisfaction, you know, okay, it's not the combination of these two; it's some other factor because it. It's of course it's possible that it is the combination of the two, but that's just so far out. There's so many other things that are more that just make more sense. So, our first sponsor for this show is Smile on My Mac with a product we haven't talked about before, and that product is called Browseback. I installed Browseback today, and it, it's actually a very cool utility. What it does is it goes through your web history, and you tell it how much of your web history to go through, and. Uh, and then as you continue browsing, it remembers every page that you've been to. And when you pull up Browse Back, you get this, this, this very visual uh, interface that looks like all of the web pages you visited kind of stacked on top of each other. As if you'd taken the pages of a book and sort of laid them out, you know, one, one on top of the other, but, but with a little bit of each page sticking out. And you can navigate through it with your, mat, with your mouse, pulling up different pages. Obviously, at that point, then you could click on it and visit it back in your browser. You can go email it. You can print it. You can save it to a PDF. And, uh, and then you can filter. You can say, uh, look, I only want to look at pages I visited between these two dates. Or, like I did today, I was looking uh, to replace a watch. I'd sent a watch in for service, and it was uh, needed to be replaced. And so they said, go to our website, and you can, you know, search for, for another watch, and we'll send it back to you. It's a cheap watch. It doesn't, you know, but, but whatever. So I figure, fine, for free, I'll take a cheap watch. It doesn't matter. And, uh, and so I went and, and searched on this website and kept hitting, you know, save to my favorites, save to my favorites. Not, not favorites in my browser, but favorites in, uh, in the website. And when I got to the end, it hadn't saved a darn thing. 
but I was able to go back. I had installed Browseback prior, uh, and I was able to go back and look at everything I'd found and, and say, oh, yeah, 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 here it is. And, and I could see it all visually. Makes a huge difference. Great little research tool. Browseback from Smile on My Mac. And with that, we move on to Adam's question about another uh, MacBook Pro issue. Recently, I've been having problems with my MacBook, Adam says. It keeps displaying that you must restart message randomly caused by kernel panics in the second processor. I've called AppleCare and they initially bought it, initially bought, initially thought it was a problem with my third party stick of Kingston RAM. After playing with it for a couple of minutes, I found out that the RAM stick had slightly dislodged, causing the hardware test to fail. I started up and performed a hardware test again and everything was fine, but a couple of days ago, the same thing happened. So I called AppleCare again. They told me to bring it to an Apple store. Unfortunately, the closest Apple store is three hours away. Plus, it couldn't be worse timing because they are building one 15 minutes away that won't be open for another couple of months. I've tried almost everything, repairing the disk from the Tiger CDs, running Tech Tool, and performing multiple hardware tests. I wondered if you had any ideas. Okay. John, you want to you go through some of the, uh, the technical ideas that you have on this one? With oh, me. gosh. <laughs> Tech ideas on this one. <laughs> um, I would say that the misseeded, the, I mean, the first thing I would guess at, though, though it's not showing up, but uh, I mean, having that misseeded RAM, and I think it, I've run into this once before, but a lot of times with some of the SIM chips, it's not clear that you have it in all the way. And a lot of times you almost have to force it. Yeah. Or just push very hard, almost more than is comfortable. And I, I so I'm not surprised that people run into this where they think it's seated. I mean, it looks like it's partway in, but it's not in totally. I mean, with, with some of the new, and depending on the type of socket, it may not be clear that it's not all the way in. I guess some of them you could snap it down and, uh, you know, it seems to be seated, but it, it, it's not fully in there. <clears throat> I mean, my guess off the top of my head is, you know, something got damaged because the thing was seated improperly and it's, for whatever reason, it's not coming up on the uh, diagnostics because, uh, Sometimes that they they don't catch some of these things. Yeah, do not believe the uh, the RAM test diagnostics from from Apple. If they tell you something's wrong, something is. If they tell you everything's okay, you don't really know. Uh, I, I, There's nothing really really wrong. <laughs> yeah, although it could be really really wrong. I, I mean, I've I've seen I've seen hardware the hardware test passed with flying colors, and then it turns out to be a bad motherboard. Um, it, it, it's definitely. Like I said, if it reports a problem, you know you have a problem. That's the only definitive answer you'll get out of hardware test. Um, if you download Applejack, which is a free utility for diagnosing uh, and, and doing some maintenance and troubleshooting at the command line in single user mode, you can also get with it a copy of, I believe it's called MemTest. Uh, if, if while you're installing it, you go to the customize screen. You can install MemTest. And... Uh, and that will actually do a different type of memory test at the command line when you start up in single user mode. That's, again, not entirely uh, without its faults, but but another way of testing. My, my guess, though, is, is that you're right, John. Uh, either the stick of RAM is just bad to begin with, or having it running in there with, with it sticking halfway out either fried the RAM or the slot or both, and... Uh, and you're having memory controller maybe yeah it could even be that that's right yeah me I'm, I'm not clear whether it's the memory chip itself or something yeah again like a memory controller i think would probably be the next thing in line or some yeah some although, sort of line buffer or something it could be the slot i've seen ram slots go bad i mean i haven't seen that since the probably the the late 90s but it's certainly possible 
um, you know, if, if you've got a, you know, remember you're making a, an electrical connection. If you've got uh, something that's not quite seated right, it may have to uh, arc a little bit to get that connection to happen, and that will cause, you know, some uh, corrosion to build up pretty quickly or some charring, rather, to build up pretty quickly and and could ruin the slot or the uh, or the sticker ramp. Ah. I, I would take... And our I, favorite... Go ahead. Our favorite solution. Uh, now, uh, I remember this. It was mostly when you would have uh, option boards for, like, the Apple II. Yeah. But if you get dirty contacts, uh, a lot of times, and I think this still works even on newer memory chips... A pencil eraser is your right. friend. Can usually clean off, uh, short of like contact cleaner, which is kind of nasty stuff. Yeah. Usually, but in a pinch, an eraser, I think uh, most erasers can be used to clean the contacts because the. I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, that's only for equipment that's pretty old. I mean. Yeah. I don't know. It's worth a shot. Maybe the contacts are kind of dirty. Now, I'm still. I mean, another thing is just if you can find a couple of other RAM chips, not necessarily. The same size, but just other RAM chips. Or just take that the RAM eliminate. out. Well, run, run think, with oh, it. Oh, wait. I'm sorry. That has onboard. Yeah, that yeah. has a small amount of onboard. No, like no. The MacBook, or 256? No, the MacBook Pro doesn't have any onboard, but presumably oh. he's got two chips in there of some kind. Take one of take yeah. one of them out and run with it. See what, uh, see what happens. Or replace the RAM. Now, AppleCare, when you had him on the phone, said you needed to bring it to an Apple store. And and it's true. They do encourage you to do that. However, they can send, uh, same day in most cases, a DHL truck to your house with a box for you to put your MacBook Pro in and send in to AppleCare. This is available to everyone. You just need to know that it's available and ask them for it. Tell them, look, the store's three hours away. I know you can come pick it up. Why don't we just head down that path? I mean, you don't necessarily want to get belligerent yep. with them, but, uh, but they can do it. No, no. And they do it all the time, uh, so just bear that in mind, and, and that that may be the uh, the solution to your. Oh yeah, your what shooter. I had, and, and actually, what that helps with is if you exchange it too many times and the problem's not solved, then oh. they start to get sick of it, and they'll just give you another machine. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> At least that worked for me, but it was like six exchanges. Yeah, well, it's like like in the which case they were lot. losing their shirt. I mean, they lost right. the money on the Apple Care contract just with oh, the yeah. shipping alone, but. Yeah, because they're doing it overnight shipping in most most cases, and that's not cheap to bounce power. But that, but I gotta say that's a it's a it's a very well done uh, service program in my experience. Unless you have to send it back and forth six times. Yeah, well, yeah. But even then, at least they they take your calls still. They don't they don't put you in caller ID as the guy that goes to you know perpetual hold. Uh, I think they may have done that with me. But they put me in the in the slow queue. Yeah. Oh, okay. He's called five times before. All right. Yeah. Aaron writes. I have a small business and I want to be able to create PDF coupons I can print out in batches. But the trick is that I need to be able to print unique coupon codes on each batch of coupons. I tried using Microsoft Word and Mail Merge with my PDF coupon to add unique coupon codes, but I could not get this to work. Any ideas? I scratched my head over this one and Mail Merge could probably work, especially if you built an Excel document that had you know all your coupon codes and you just made it, you know, go forever and then merge that back in you could probably do something like that right because in Excel let's say your your coupon codes are a thousand one thousand two thousand three thousand four all the way up to five thousand right you can tell Excel look figure out what this pattern is here and then repeat it for you know the next thousand cells and then at that point you've got a database that you can merge with Word and it would work I wouldn't do that though I would use FileMaker and uh, FileMaker you can create a layout that will uh, you know, you can design your coupon graphically right there, drag things around, move things just as you like. 
uh, put your serial number in, and then you can have another layout where you define your serial numbers. And then on that other layout, you could also leave fields for name and date issued, or, or maybe not date issued, but date printed, and then date uh, uh, redeemed. And uh, and then not only have you printed your coupons to PDF, and you could write a little script that actually exported, or, or not exported, but printed each coupon as a PDF. So you'd wind up with a folder full of you know coupon files that you could just hand out at will. And then when a coupon comes back in, you could log it back in your FileMaker database, make sure it's not being used twice, et cetera, et cetera. So that, would, that was kind of my, uh, my thought process on that one. But I, I'm a FileMaker geek, so that's, uh, that's, how, I, that's how I roll. Do uh, you have any other ideas, John, on that one? No. No. All right. That's it. Uh, do I? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you tell me. Our second sponsor for this show is Audible. They are back for the month of August with a new link, audible.com slash MacGeekGab. No longer do you have to hunt through the show notes to find the uh, the the very uh, 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 cryptic, that's the word I'm looking for, the very cryptic link, uh, MacGeek, uh, sorry, audible.com slash MacGeekGab. That will get you to the special page that allows you to redeem your 14-day free trial of Audible Listener Gold with one free download right away. As soon as you sign up, you can download for free. Uh, listen to the files wherever you like. You can burn them to CD. You can transfer them to your iPod. Most other MP3 players will take them. Uh, you can uh, listen to them right there on your Mac. All sorts of stuff. Uh, over 35,000 titles to choose from. I wind up downloading a lot of comedy stuff that I listen to on the way home from gigs late at night because it uh, it keeps me alive and awake. Uh, but there's plenty of Mac-oriented books, too. The I Was, How I Invented the Personal Computer and Had Fun Along the Way. Stephen Levy's The Perfect Thing, How the iPod Shuffles Commerce, Culture, and Coolness. And the Icon, Steve Jobs' book, Second Greatest Act in the History of Business. Not written by Steve, but uh, written about Steve. So, Audible.com slash MacGeekGab for your free trial. And with that, we'll move on to something that uh, that Christopher, Christopher actually sent in two uh, two comments this week, and so we'll play them this way. Hey guys, I was just listening to your show about the student who was going off to college and interested in some tips for security, and I thought it was brilliant that you went into physical security right away. But there's something that I would like to add to that. There's a great utility out there by Orbitule which is O-R-B-I-C-U-L-E, and I believe it is .com. It's called Undercover, and it's a utility slash service that they provide. Uh, it's a one-time fee. I believe it's around $30. You don't pay a monthly or annual subscription. And what, it, what you do is you install their software. It runs real low level under the hood in Unix. And if your laptop should ever be stolen, you can call in and report that your, your computer is missing and if they activate the software on your laptop over the internet next time it connects. And what it does is it takes pictures uh, through the built-in camera of the supposed thief and it logs, takes screenshots of uh, the activities they're doing. So say they sign into their Yahoo Mail account or something like that uh, while using your computer, then they'll take screenshots that'll have their email address and username and find out all kinds of good stuff about this person. It'll, it'll also report back the IP address that they're working from, and usually that can be uh, used to uh, have police and law enforcement track down and, and, and relocate and recover your, your stolen laptop. And I tell you, the police are pretty compelled to do it when they've got pictures of, of the thief right there being supplied to them by Orbicule. 
So it's a great service. Um, it's an excellent insurance policy, and I urge everyone to check it out. It's very well done. The, the folks there are very friendly, and they respond to your questions. Uh, so check them out. Thanks, guys. Have a, have a great day. That's pretty cool. Uh, I, I like the fact that it not only takes a picture of the, uh, the the alleged thief, but also you know starts sending screenshots around. That's fantastic, actually. That's a great idea. Awesome. Yeah, I uh, I saw one other product similar. Um, I don't know. It looks like uh, they haven't updated their page in a while, but uh, Brigadoon Security Group. It's called Mac Phone Home. I've I've seen them at some of the uh, the, the MacWorld shows. Yeah. Uh, but it does something a little different. Uh, very, it looks like a subset here, but uh, it sends an email. Uh, I guess whenever the machine wakes up and it gets a connection, it sends an email, which contains the location of the computer. Uh, you know, I guess it traces back the IP address and stuff like that. So it uh, doesn't seem to do as, as many things. I like the uh, yeah screenshots and the picture thing. I mean, especially the picture thing. I and mean, that could be rather embarrassing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Depending on what the person is doing or where they are when they're, you know, trying to hawk your equipment or something. So anyways. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, I mean. Yeah, it, good stuff. I, can you imagine <laughs> getting a picture of somebody? Like, that's the guy. That's him. Uh, no, is, I can't. But, but no. yeah, before, uh, when we talked about it before, the, the, the one thing I remember, I, th I think it's actually a Kensington lock. But uh, I wasn't very oh, clear, yeah. but a lot of the machines have a place where you can plug in a pretty indestructible uh, anchor uh, and lock. And it, you know, keeps the, the machine, you know, hopefully you have the other end of it, you know, anchored to like a desk or something that, that can't move. Right. Um, but yeah, if people can't run off with it, uh, you know, and lock your screen. Don't forget. That's right. So, yeah. Uh, Christopher also had a, a, a question that we're going to we'll run through here. Hey, guys, this is Christopher with MacWorks in Minneapolis. I'm a fairly savvy guy. I've, I've been uh, a Macintosh IT consultant uh, for nearly a decade now and a web developer and I've done just about everything under the sun with computers but there's an area that uh, I'm a little uncertain about and uh, I'm wondering if you guys might have uh, a way of explaining what what it is and how you can use it and, and that is static routing. I've noticed that in you know especially DSL modems and I think probably some um, other routers have this option or this <clears throat> section in the configuration where you can set up static routes. And uh, I really have no idea what a static route is or, or when and how someone might use a static route. So if you guys could uh, provide a little insight into that, I would appreciate it. Thank uh, Sorry to cut you off there, Christopher. I didn't want to play your email address. <clears throat> Uh, okay, so the idea behind the internet is that you tell your computer, I want to talk to uh, a computer with IP address of X, and then your computer talks to all the routers in between and basically says, please pass this packet along to router with or to the machine with the IP address of X. And the routers then all intelligently and automatically, dynamically even, decide how to uh, how to route your packet and and of course the way Milo Medine designed TCP IP in the in back in the day was the, the whole point was for packets let's say you have uh, data that you need to get from New York to California and in the event of a nuclear strike we want that to continue so let's say normally that data goes through Chicago well if the bombs hit Chicago we want 
all the routers without any human intervention to know that, okay, I can't get through Chicago, so let's turn around and back down, and maybe let's go through Dallas and try and get there that way, right? That, that's an oversimplification of it, but that was the, the general goal, and he achieved that goal almost too well, right, for, for a lot of things. I mean, it, it's, it's for that reason alone that it's very hard to tax traffic on the Internet because, you know, if you've got one hub taxing things, well, you just – Okay, let's just not use that, and we'll go around, and, and no problem. You know, we're good to go. Uh, there are times, however, when you want to tell your computer, look, when you're sending packets somewhere, go this way. Don't be, don't try to be smart about it. Go there. Now, those times are fairly uh, uncommon. However, if you're in your house setting up uh, static IP addresses on on your internal network, let's say you've got a computer that you want to be able to access from the outside world. You're going to set up the IP address and the subnet mask and then the gateway. Well, when you set up the gateway, that is a very simple uh, use of a static route. You're saying, look, take all the traffic and send it here. Uh, now, presumably, then your router then decides how to, how to deal with it out there. But, in a, you know, in a corporate environment, let's say you've got, um, let's say you're even a small office, right, but you need connectivity. So you've decided to go out and get a cable modem and a DSL modem, right? And you've got them both connected all the time. You could set up your router to statically route through the cable modem, and then if the uh, cable modem goes down, you could change that static route to the uh, to the DSL modem, and that would be another way to do it. Um, I think beyond that would probably go beyond the scope of what most of our listeners would, would need to do with it, but that's... Uh, I, I know we all see this option for static routes when we're in there... Uh, kind of tinkering with our routers and I just wanted to kind of give an overview of, of what that was. Did, did I, uh, did I miss anything there, John, that, that you know of? Huh? huh? <clears throat> oh no, no, of course not. And actually I want to add something. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, if you go to applications network, I'm sorry, applications utilities yeah. in that folder, there, there's our friend network utility, which I, I believe we uh, talked about last week. Yeah. But if you go to that, you click on Netstat. And then you say display routing table information. Yeah. Voila. There is your routing table, your current one. And it shows destination, various destinations, various gateways, some flags, yep. and uh, you know some other information. That, that, but that's basically how your TCP IP stack sees the world and what it uses to decide what should go where. Um, and actually, I fondly remember doing some work in this a number of years ago. It was uh, due to a... Uh, you know, silly little internal battle between various groups uh, that that worked in the same place. And yeah. what was happening was basically I managed the connection. You know, had the uh, firewall slash router machine. It was a sunbox, and uh, and apparently someone uh, in another group uh, kind of commandeered our line for their own purposes and didn't tell me. So uh, I'm like, oh, come on, don't we work for the same company? <laughs> you would think people would think that, but no, no, no. You know, IT versus R and D or whatever. So, anyways, yeah. I I learned a little something about how to reroute specific traffic because I, I i had the first look i'm like why is my connection you know like molasses oh, oh because there's yeah. all this traffic that i didn't know about going through it sure so you know after doing some packet you know sniffing um basically put in a route that would reroute that traffic to a non-existent address which uh basically means it went nowhere right so, right <laughs> shortly after that happened um you know th then we had a talk yeah sorted everything <laughs> out i'm sure like dude what know what, what's happening with the traffic that we're trying to send through your line i'm like what traffic's that <laughs> what fun uh Again, so let's all pretend we work for the same company and things just go a lot smoother that's right so anyways uh, so that's a bad use of static routing 
Well, it brought your uh, it, it kept your traffic from being you know brought to its knees. So that's not <laughs> yes, bad. So, speaking of of things that that you found though, you you kind of stumbled on a couple of things this week that uh, that well. The specific examples may not necessarily apply to everyone. It uh, we always like to uh, pursue and and preach good troubleshooting methods, and and I think this is a great huh? opportunity to, to talk about okay. uh, one or two yeah. of them. So, so there's a few things I was doing over the weekend. So one uh, I mentioned the last show, although I highly recommend uh, X Battery as a yeah. utility, and you know we were talking about battery capacities. I was having a problem where I would try to launch it, and okay. I would sit there. I would get the bouncy bouncy icon in the dock for about a minute. Yeah. And then it would just stop. And I'm like, okay, that's not good. Um, I looked in the console, and there was a message that would come up at about the time this quit. I don't recall. But it wasn't something that explicitly pointed. It didn't really lead me to any, you know, what's specific enough. But it just said, you know, like, you know, exception thrown, trying to load something. Like, yeah. So the first place you probably want to look, and it's very convenient that we mentioned this before, uh, is look in your preferences file. A lot of times, for whatever reason, preferences or plists, um, get screwed up. Okay. So uh, I tried that, and and actually what I had to do is I used Spotlight. And this was X battery, and so I searched, and actually uh, the the writer of this utility, uh, Jeremy Kieser. Yep. Uh, I found that it, it wasn't quite where I expected. But it was pretty close. It was in you know users slash John Braun slash library slash preferences slash Jeremy Kieser's utilities and then okay. he had the preferences in there. So he's actually being kind of nice and neat and putting all this stuff in one place. And there were a number of files. There was a preference file. Got rid of that. Same failure. Then I saw two other files uh, that he stores, which is historical data because this utility will store history about the state of your battery over like months or, or years. Um, so basically, I whacked those two files. That was it. Good to go. It launched. Huh? Ah. So was was very close. Yeah. Um, now you want to be careful because, as we mentioned, you know sometimes there's important things stored in preferences. So, and actually, what I think I may have done is actually highlighted them all and and made an archive using the built-in archive functionality you know, yep. through a contextual menu, just in case those files are important, I could restore them. But putting them in a zip file makes it so that it won't see them anymore. So put them in a zip file, then trash them, and then uh, see what happens. Yeah, you could you could probably, it, it's not like the old OS 9 days where the system used to be able to follow a file anywhere on the uh, on the drive. You know, if you moved a file, it would still be able to access it. Typically, from what I found now with, with OS X, if you were to just have deleted them, i.e. moved them to the trash, uh, and even if you hadn't emptied the trash, that still would have caused the uh, the app to, to see, well, they're not here, let's go create them, and it probably would have done the same thing. But the archive is obviously the safe move, and I'm a big fan of that myself. So, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, uh, And actually, I was cleaning up my hard drive over the weekend, and a lot of things that I may need someday but I don't need right now, DVD. put them in a zip file and then... Uh, well, I, I keep, but I keep them in a, in a separate folder, and I compress them just so they don't take yeah. quite as much space. Oh, okay. Um, so that was one thing. And then the other thing is I was looking at my printer. Now, I hadn't tried for the longest time. So I have a GCC uh, Elite 12 laser printer. Yeah. And uh, normally what I do when I print envelopes, and I was, you know, I had to print some envelopes, I do it under uh, something called Easy Envelopes, which is like old, 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 but it wow. still works under Classic. Yeah, not it's if Andrew you've got Intel Mac. Oh, right, right. But anyway, so it still works, and I still use it, but the thing is, so it uses the OS 9 or classic environment. And and what happened is that it would always make available the option. So this printer has two paper pads. It has one where it comes out either on the top of the printer yep. or the back of the printer. The problem is the top of the printer, envelopes really can't navigate too well because they pretty much have to do a 180 and roll around and come back towards you, and they typically jam. 
Okay. So that's why you put them, want to put them through the back because they don't have to bend. They just shoot right out the back. And then, of course, you got to catch them. Yep. But when I was under OS 10, I'm like, where did the option for the output tray go? It wasn't in any of the printer dialogues. <sighs> like, well, that's really weird. So I'm like, okay, it can't be the printer. I mean, well, obviously not. It's the driver software. So I'm like, why does this appear under 9 but not 10? And so I went to their website. Uh, did a little search, and I didn't find it on the first page of results, second page of results. And, you know, I think the, the search was like, you know, output tray OS X. And it's like, oh, well, apparently, I guess what happens when you upgrade to newer versions of OS X, and this was their speculation, sometimes the printer drivers, I guess the OS X will replace printer drivers with versions it has. Okay. They may not necessarily be up to date or correct. Ah, okay. Especially if there are newer versions and maybe they didn't get to get them to Apple in time, or if you're, you know, installing an older version of the OS. Sure. Uh, it may replace them. So their suggestion, which was right on the money, was uh, download this installer. It reinstalled the PPDs, which stands for Postscript Printer Description. Yep. And this is something I always thought was kind of weird about printers is that, so apparently for most printers, its capabilities are stored in the PPD file. And for Postscript maybe, printers, yeah. And I've even seen this on Windows as well. Yep. Is that it seems you would think that you could ask the printer, hey, can you do this? And that it doesn't have to be in a file so that the computer knows that the printer can do something. You know where I'm going with this? Yeah, that's true. Just, if if there's a if if a file will describe the capabilities of the printer, why couldn't the printer hold that file internally as opposed to having to go and, and download it? it? Especially if it's a PPD file where the format is the same for Mac or PC, it doesn't matter. That's uh, that's an interesting thought. I mean, I guess, I guess the issue there would be, well, if we find a better way to do things with, uh, with the printer software, then we're stuck with what's in the printer. But you could always say, well, Use don't use the PPD built in. Use this one to override it. But yeah, that's interesting. Um, right, and where it appeared yeah. was in the printer dialog. So it's under, a, you know, there's usually several menus uh, in the main print dialog: copies and pages, layout, blah blah blah. Yeah. This one was under something called printer features, which I think is where you typically toss things that are specific to that printer. Okay. And the features that would show up would be the resolution. I can do 1200, 600, 300. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, when I reinstall the PPD, an output tray option appeared which is yep. either use current setting top or rear yeah hooray but it, it definitely required the reinstallation uh and it replaced the ppd file and i guess then what you got to reboot and all that yeah and then it appeared so just so a lot of times it, it, and i know we've had uh callers listeners or both yeah in the past where you have your printer doing kind of wacky things see if there's a newer driver, replace it, or I guess the other hint these guys gave, which I think is, is good advice too, is that a lot of times the, the computer will guess at the yes. uh, printer that it's connecting to. It may not be right. You may want to explicitly yep. go through the printer brand and look at all the drivers, and sometimes you have uh, you may have multiple versions of drivers for the same type of printer. Yeah. So, but it was aggravating because, I mean, knowing the feature is there and I can't access it... <laughs> And the printer jammed yet again, which isn't that bad, but it's... Yeah. So. Uh, all right. Uh, Jorge had wrote in... Had wrote in. That's good English. Jorge had written in, uh, looking for... He knew there was an app, in, back in the old days, uh, an app that would allow you to set the audio output settings for each individual application on your Mac. Um and, and adjust volume levels so that, you know, if you're, let's say, playing some music through iTunes, you don't get uh, uh, 
say some you know web-based flash-based audio just blasting you out at the same time and and there was and i i can't remember the name of the app i actually uh, was talking to michael johnston about it today he couldn't remember the name of it either he remembered that it was a rogue amoeba th thing which makes perfect sense they are you know the audio uh core audio guys out there um but we couldn't remember the name of the app and it was an old power pc app to begin with uh so it wouldn't be working on uh on today's intel based macs if anyone out there knows of any way of doing this, of ca I mean, obviously we could do it with Audio Hijack Pro, right? We could hijack the audio from, uh, say, Safari, and then you know pull the slider down uh, in the the volume in the effects panel or effects pane, and that would work fine. But it would be uh, for those of us that aren't big Audio Hijack Pro fans uh, or users. There's got to be something else out there. Maybe maybe somebody's written something. So if you know of this, please send it in. So we'll, we'll put this in the uh, not in the cool stuff found folder, but we'll put it in the cool stuff to find folder, and uh, and we'll leave it at that. Speaking of which, Michael Johnston is uh, out there every day reporting on all your iPhone news at iPhoneAlley.com. Uh, that's when he's not busy converting this show to AAC, which he's done for you again this week. So we applaud him on all of his efforts because. Uh, <laughs> There you go, John. <laughs> Should have had a clap trap there, right? Uh, Podcast and New Media Expo, September 28th to September 30th. John and I have booked our flights. We will be there. Uh, poor John has a red eye. Oh, a, man. A, a, There's no way is, around it. This is terrible. You have a triple connection or a double connection red eye coming home. I, it, just, I, it just doesn't get the worse than is, that. I wanted to be there. Yeah, for the listeners, throughout yeah. the whole event, I could have left early, right? And but no, I, I I wouldn't do that. Yeah, man. And and then you know, so it was either leave Sunday night and and go through what you're going through, or leave you know stay over Sunday night, which would have been fine, and leave Monday morning. But then leaving Monday morning, you're still not home bad. until midnight. Yeah, you might as well get home at 10 a.m. and then sleep the rest of the day. I, man. It's the price I pay for convenience because I just hate going to New York City airports. Yeah, there's that. So much nicer to just kind of, you know, yeah. drive up to Bradley and you know, there's no traffic jams. Just get a parking spot. They yep. drop you off. You get through. The TSA goons are, you know, pretty uh, not too goony. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they're always nice there. They're always, you know, because, yeah. come on, it's Connecticut. I used to fly out of Bradley all the time. I used to love that airport. But I, I it, yeah. it, it, it never, there. if I was going to... A major airport, I was fine. If I was going to another regional airport, like we are for the uh, like Ontario, like Ontario, yeah. California, it was it's yeah. So, uh, but we will be there. So, uh, cash fly. I'm flying out of Logan, in Boston. Oh, I still, oh, I still have to big, connect. That's a big airport. Yeah, but I still connect through Dallas. There's no nonstop. Well, actually, there is. I think there was a JetBlue nonstop, but I've got to go to Austin on the way back, so it's not going to work. Uh, cash fly hosting is. Providing the uh, the bandwidth for, that you use when you're downloading this show from uh, from them every week, I've got to find out. I just got to come up with a better way of saying that. Uh, the podcast marketplace this month has the A5 desktop speakers from Audio Engine, BB Edit from Barebones Software, one free download from Audible.com, and Browse Back from Smile on My Mac. And uh, John, I think that's it. I think we're done. We're finished. <laughs> you're finished. Been a long day. It has been a long day. It feels like a long day. I had a gig mm. Saturday night, and I, I, I think I'm still. I'm not. I'm not in my twenties anymore. You know.
No, I haven't been for a while. Tell me about it. <laughs> Why don't you tell me about it, John? Hmm? Don't get caught. Made up.